Hello and welcome to another episode of Use of Force. This week we were walking through Manhattan with our theme of the music of Manhattan. It took us all around the island, but specifically up to Harlem, where the incident that we'll be speaking about on this episode occurred. This incident happened on February 14th, 2012. And Mike will read the use of force report. On February 14th, at 16.14 hours, in the 30th precinct, a detective assigned to the Queen's Violent Felony Squad was with his team conducting an operation to apprehend a subject who was wanted for felony assault, having shot a woman in the face the day before. While tracking the subject's movements via cell phone, his location was established, and the detectives observed the subject enter the NYC transit system. While moving in to apprehend the subject, the detective called to the subject, identifying himself and ordering the subject to stop. The subject then turned toward the detective and fired five rounds from a 22 caliber revolver, striking the detective in the left arm. The detective returned fire, discharging 13 rounds from his weapon, striking the subject three times, and causing his demise. The subject had numerous prior arrests, including robbery, assault, burglary, and firearms possession. So, one thing that you can notice immediately is why is there a Queen's Violent Felony Squad up in Manhattan? Right, and so the answer for that is the day before this man, the man that was killed in this incident, his name is Michael McBride, and he had been in Rockaway Beach, that the neighborhood, um, which is in Queens, and he had been at his ex-girlfriend's house. Some of the reporting says that he was there to pick up some of his things. I guess he had been living there previously, but they were separated and his ex-girlfriend's daughter who was a young woman in her 20s got into an argument with Michael McBride and he ended up shooting her in the head and then fleeing the scene and so during this time she was in the hospital in critical condition and the police had records that showed that Michael McBride lived in the area. So they had spent the entire day before searching the Rockaway Beach neighborhood, searching around where his old home had been, searching the subways. I think I read that they closed down the subway for a period of the day until they realized that he actually lived uptown at this point. He lived up on 145th Street and they started following his cell phone records and that's how um, the next day that whole team of police were up town instead of in Queens. Yeah. And something that we noticed relative to some of the other use of force cases we've seen recently is that there wasn't a lot of fanfare following the 
I won't say apprehension because the subject wasn't apprehended, but following the conclusion of this case. Right. Yeah, there was there were articles written about the events, but there wasn't really much of a follow up that I couldn't find anywhere that McBride's family was interviewed. I couldn't find any follow ups on, you know, the the status of the ex-girlfriend's daughter that got shot. I think from a Google search that she was okay. I, I think I found, you know, where, you know, where she is today, but there wasn't any actual reporting on it. And it doesn't look like there were any lawsuits or anything like that. In fact, uh, Kevin Herlihy, who was the detective that shot Michael McBride, he, I found him on Capstat, which is the website we've been using to look up the history of um, police officers. He was an officer from 1994 until 2016. And when I was searching his name, nothing showed up as far as any sort of awards being given after this or anything like that, as we often see in these sorts of cases. He, there were, you know, there were, pertaining to this case, there were interviews with his neighbors, an interview with his father, all people praising him and calling him a hero and talking about how he's good to his neighbors and things like that. But there wasn't sort of this, this thing that we've seen in a lot of the incidents where there's a lot of follow-up. It, it seems like there really wasn't in this particular incident. Yeah, it will be interesting to see as we continue with the second half of the year how many times some of the more prominent instances of the police union uh, making the situation more publicly known occurred before or after the Eric Garner incident because there were a number, uh, at least three or four probably, since we've done the Eric Garner story where we took note of the dates and, and noticed they were within a year or so after. And when that happened, the PBA was making a, a big case about you know, publicizing acts of heroism, perceived right. heroism, and providing awards and things like that. And it, yeah, it would be interesting to see if it if it's just anecdotal at this point, or if there is some sort of pattern where once that was escalated because of a very a countrywide, you know, public event, if that was the, the if the tenor changed. Right. And I think uh, both from the police union and also within the reporting, I think, and, and it's true, we'll have to probably focus on this to actually say for sure, but it seems like even the language within the reporting has changed since then. This particular incident was covered by Rockawave, which is a local Rockaway Queens uh, online publication, Newsday, The Huffington Post, uh, 
queens.com, WNYC, and The Post. And that was, I don't know if that's everything that covered it, but those were um, the articles that I was able to read. And, you know, The Post is always kind of a little more outrageous and headline grabbing and offensive, for lack of a better term to use, than some of the other publications. But they're really, you know, in 2012, they're really leaning hard into the language of this person was a criminal, using the word thug over and over, really saying, just leaning into the negative language around someone that's committed a crime. And then, you know, you read the WNYC article and it's pretty much just reporting on what's happened. And I think if we look at these things today, even since 2012, I think we've gotten, the language around reporting has seemed to change. So I think that's a good thing to, I think we should pay attention to that as we go forward. Mm. Yeah. Well, as far as the incident itself, the weapon in question was uh, an, an illegally obtained revolver, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was a small... It was a twenty-two, from what I recall in the use of force. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and yes, it was illegally obtained. There's no... I did try to find um, any information about that, and I couldn't find anything additional about that specific gun. I did find a quote from Bloomberg referencing that there had been a, f a few other incidents earlier in that year, within the last two months it was, there had been three additional police officers that had been shot. And the thing that all of those had in common was that they were illegal weapons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he used, Bloomberg used that as an opportunity to say publicly, you know, put pressure on Washington publicly to deal with the gun laws around illegal weapons. Yeah. And that is the extent of what we know really about Michael McBride. And as far as the reporting goes, it's, it's pretty scant. Yeah, unfortunately, there really isn't there really isn't any information that i was able to find on who he was sort of outside of this particular incident and you know there's a list of his um his rap sheet i guess there's a small list of the crimes he's committed but there weren't there wasn't really any uh information about you know how he found himself in this in these situations and what was going on that you know got him to the place where he was bringing a gun to his ex-girlfriend's house and shooting her daughter and then being followed by police and having an illegal gun in the first place there's really no backstory as to like what got this guy to that place right. so and you wonder if that would be the case now or if it would be different in this environment. Yeah, exactly. I think that's 
that's kind of what I, um, that's another element of what I was thinking about when I'm saying that the reporting is so different in 2012 than it is today, where I feel like most of these incidents that are more current do focus on a, at least a little bit of the humanity of the person that's been killed, even if they're, even if they've done something bad, you know, it still tends to try and humanize people. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that's what we're trying to do as well. So I think that that's good. And I'm, I'm glad that the reporting has gotten better in that way and tells a fuller story. Um, and, and I guess I'm going to be, as we're moving forward, I will be making it a point to really pay more attention to that so that it, we can confirm whether what we think we're noticing is actually true. Yeah. It's actually a trend. Yeah. But yeah, I think, um, because that wasn't the case in 2012, because there wasn't quite as much, uh, interest in reporting on the details of incidents like this that seems to be all we have to share about this uh, particular lethal use of force so as always if anyone else has any information to share with us we would be happy to hear from you either on this incident or any others that we will be discussing throughout the year. And either way, thanks for listening. Bye.